Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Rates and Barrels, it's Tuesday, June 6th, Project Prospect Edition. Derek Van Riper, Eno Sarath, Chris Welsh, all here with you for what is the beginning of a new era of Reds baseball, which I hope, I hope was written in the Rotowire player note by my good friend Clay Link. Ellie De La Cruz has been promoted by the Reds. It has finally happened after all of our frustrations and whining and hoping and praying it has finally happened. And look, this is going to be a big part of the show today because we're excited about it. We've seen the improvement in the strikeout rate this year down to a 26.9% K rate at AAA. If you are not familiar with Ellie De La Cruz for some reason, that is a big deal. This is a guy that's run 30% K rates at other stops, but he's been very young for the level. Walking 14% of the time, which is great even when you account for the automated balls and strike system at AAA. So it's not just the byproduct of that. And, of course, the tools are off the charts. Hits the ball extremely hard. As hard as anyone you're going to find in the minor leagues. Run. We're talking about a possible five-category player. So, Welsh, I know you have been amped up for this. You were actually on a live stream when the news broke earlier. So, very fortunate timing with this happening before our pod today. But pie-in-the-sky immediate expectations for Ellie De La Cruz are probably going to push bids and redraft leagues where he's available, and there's plenty of leagues where he's not, are going to push him through the roof. This is going to be one of the most expensive hitter that you see added in leagues when we get to fab this weekend. Yeah, yeah. A couple of, it's, it's funny. I was actually on this like tirade of complaining about like what the hell are the Reds doing? Like It made no sense why it didn't happen. Like If it were to happen in a month, why would it just not happen now? There's no extra advantage. None of it made sense. And I was like complaining and like, what are we doing? I was going to do my little sign. I had the Brandon fought one of Ellie. And then literally as I shut up, I noticed two minutes prior, the reds had uh, given him the call up. You know, (laughs) the one thing I'll say about this whole thing too, I actually think, and this is not to like harp on everybody, but if you're bidding a whole lot on Ellie, you did it wrong because I'm not crazy about like, oh, you got to go preemptively pick up all these guys left and right. But this is the guy that you like preemptively pick up. Like if you're having to bid for Andrew Abbott, I kind of understand that. Like we weren't really sure where the Reds were going to go with that. But Ellie De La Cruz was definitely somebody that you wanted to jump in on. It's been a phenomenal year. I actually made the change. I know we're going to talk about uh, some of this probably next week. I've got some, my updated, I do monthly dynasty and prospect lists for fantasy are updated. The Athletic, I'll be doing an update on my dynasty list next week. But I made that move to put Ellie as number one uh, overall on the prospect list because there's a clump. There's actually a really nice clump that's sitting in there of, you know, Jordan Walker, don't fall off of Jordan Walker. Jackson Holiday, 
is insanely talented. I don't know if people even realize in the month of May in his league, he had the best batting average. And this is a guy that got re-promoted hitting over 400. Um, Jackson Churio belongs in there, but Ellie De La Cruz has just become the cream of the crop. I love the ability to lower the strikeout rate. The EVs are world renowned right now. And I look back since May and this is a, and this might seem stupid, but this is like a big development for him. He had more games from May until his call up without strikeouts than he had multi strikeout games. And I know that might not seem like a big deal, but it is. This is a guy that's been striking out over 30% of the time, 30.9% in double A last year, 30 in high A, 31 in single A. And he has cut that rate down. He had one really bad game in the last month where he had a five strikeout game, but eight games without strikeouts since May 1st and only six games, I believe, five or six games that were multi-strikeout games. So it's all coming together, and he's going to take that to become a really big, impactful uh, fantasy option. But we do have to watch what that swing and miss is going to do at the major league level. But this is the guy that you get jazzed up for. I'm not sure there's going to be another guy um, with the type of buzz. My prediction would be uh, Jason Dominguez would get the same type of buzz simply because his name, if he gets called up later this year. But this is the pinnacle of uh, prospects right now. And he's a must own. Whatever your question is, he's a mu- you have to own him. Uh, Eno gets to reap the benefits because everybody in his Otno league was trying to get Ellie. You now get to bring Ellie up without having to pay the price or make a move, you know? Yeah. Uh, should I, uh, should I be the cold water? Uh, yeah. Yes. Be, try to be let's, the cold water. Let's go. Talk about strikeouts and the swing and miss rate. Yeah, it's cold water. Nobody likes this guy. You want the projections? <laughs> Nobody likes this guy. They're on your side. Uh, I, I just did a simple query, uh, age 21 or less in AAA since 2010. Now there's just one thing that's, uh, that I have to say right away, which is kind of amazing. There's only been 33 player seasons like this since 2010. So just the fact that he's 21 and made it to AAA is weird. Yeah, like yeah. Mm-hmm. he's already on a list that includes Kyle Tucker, Ozzy Albies, uh, Anthony Rizzo, uh, Will Myers, Ahmed Rosario, Corey Seager, Manny Margot. I mean, these guys are a lot of them are big leaguers. However, mm-hmm. all those guys that I just mentioned strike out less. <laughs> and so I just sorted this list of 33 players all 21 and younger at AAA qualified bats. And I sorted them by strikeout rate. Number one, which is actually a pretty good comp, maybe, Javi Baez. Okay. That's not good cold water, but it exists. Number two, here's where the cold water starts. Domingo Santana. Number (laughs) three, John Kensky Noel. Number four, Franklin Barreto. That name gives me shivers. You're right. Nobody likes this guy, you know. Nobody likes this guy. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> likes this guy. <laughs> Tyler Soderstrom, Ellie De La Cruz. Uh, Tyler Soderstrom is doing it this year, so kind of hard to say anything about that. And then there's actually a four percentage point drop between Ellie De La Cruz at six and Willie Adamas at seven. So I would have to say that I think a 
a really good outcome for Ellie De La Cruz is like a Willie Adamas with more power. And are you talking about a rookie year outcome? Or are you talking about peak year yeah, outcomes? Career. Like it's very important to clarify this. Why am I not talking about peak? I mean, I'm comparing them as 21-year-olds in AAA. Right, but you're talking about what we're going to get or likely what we're going to get from Ellie De La Cruz yeah. as a rookie, because this I'm is not, where the I, I tension is sort of peak. But okay, you're talking about peaks because I think there's there's two pretty big conversations. It's like, well, what is he going to do right now, and then what is he going to become later? And there's that tension messes with Fab every week, it messes with drop decisions, it messes with the conversations people have on their podcasts and things they write because you write off a player temporarily, and it doesn't mean you don't like them. In the long-term future, it just means you don't like them right, right. now. So, so, I, I, so where are you really as at Mr. Coldwater? I'm going to finish <laughs> finish throwing the cold water on because <laughs> I was talking about sort of peak and career arcs. So I think okay. there could be something similar to Ellie's career arc to a Willie Adamas with more power and speed. That would be a really good outcome. Uh, I think a Javi Baez career in general could be one of the outcomes for Eli De La Cruz, which would be great in the short run, but may have some ups and downs. And then if you want to talk rookie season, Javi Baez is probably the best comp out of all these guys for lots of different reasons in terms of athleticism, power, you know, all these things. Uh, this is what Javi Baez did in 2014 when he was called up from AAA with a 30% strikeout rate, 169 batting average, 227 OBP, 324 slugging, 6% walk rate, 42% K rate. One thing I was going to throw in there too, Javi Baez actually, ironically, might fit this mold, but one of those arguments, to, and it's not everything, but you know, when you're talking about uh, the skill level and stuff, how many of those guys have... 117 mile an hour uh, velos on every any given night. Like maybe Javi Baez, a lot of those guys. You, you, I would also consider that. You know who I was thinking about? I Javi did this. Baez, 112, 113. Yeah, no, he's like the guy of all those other names you were talking yeah. about. He actually might have been relevant of like not hitting 117s, but hitting like 112s, 113s, like on a nightly basis. That was kind of his game. So that's a pretty good comp. I've been sitting on this and this might be a little too much. I just talked about this on my Prospect One show. That's just me ranting into the airwaves, into the universe about things to myself. But I was thinking that what Ellie's doing right now reminds me actually a lot of Fernando Tatis Jr. in those mm. early years. And I, while you were talking, I was trying to kind of take a look here. Prior to his call-up, the only difference here is Fernando Tatis actually got skipped from AA into the majors and didn't hit AAA. But... Uh -huh. At so double A, up on my query, right? Yeah, he might have, but at double A, because he had a similar. If everyone remembers, like, remember like Derek Cardi's projections, it was like everybody. There was the big fight about big the talent level rates. versus the strikeout rates. Fernando Tatis Jr. at double uh, A in 2019 or 2018 when he played the full season, 27.7 percent strikeout rate in double A in 2017. He played only a little bit, 29.8 percent. Even in low A, had a 26.5%. So it's not a perfect comp, but it's relative to where Ellie is now to where Fernando Tatis was right before the call-up. And then he came up, and in his rookie season, Tatis had a 30% strikeout rate, 22 homers, 16 stolen bases in 84 games played. So you actually have a potential for 
Ellie to play a very similar spectrum of uh, of what Tatis did. And you've got big, hard hit numbers like Tatis. I just think that that might be an interesting comp, though. I think there might be a little bit more swing and miss in uh, Ellie's game than Tatis. I just feel like that might be a fun comp to kind of sit on, especially in the world of projections and the hard hits. I just don't think there's anybody that compares to Ellie outside of maybe Tatis or, you know, your bias one is actually pretty good. Yeah, Tatis, I mean, he spent 102 games between 2017 and 2018 at double A before he got promoted. I guess he had another couple in 2019 as well. But the K rate was in the high 20% range and the walk rate was below double digits. So there were concerns about his plate discipline right away. And I think this is where the age to level conversation and the research that you brought up uh, last week, you know, that's that's where I'm kind of saying, yeah, you know, the strikeout rate, it's a little concerning, but don't. Don't lose sight of the 21. ridiculous tools and what he's doing at his age and and like wipe that away because the strikeout rate's a little higher than you want. I mean, we know the league as a whole strikes out more than it has really at any point since any of us cared about baseball. If you do extraordinary damage and you connect and you have the speed to fall back on, you can do just fine with a 30% K rate upon arrival and maybe improve that over time given how, how young he is. That wouldn't be surprise at all if two three four years down the road we're talking about a guy that has whittled that k rate down from the 30 percent range to the lower 20s or at least the mid 20s that would make all the sense in the world since he's so young yeah and also look you look at some of the patience that has evolved in there going back and just doing the fernando tatis thing fernando tatis only at one point in his minor league career had like a double digit walk rate, 14% at high A, or I'm sorry, at low A when um, he was 18 years old. Otherwise it was sitting in the eights. Ellie, while lowering his strikeout rate, raised his walk rate 14%. So you saw him learn to cut down. You saw, and especially over time in the season, you saw him readjust there. You saw him walk more. You saw the hard hits at a level I don't know if we've seen in the minors, at least especially because we can track more than ever. And he has a similar skill set as far as the power speed combo. I know it's absurd because you don't you don't want to do the Harold Reynolds where everybody's Bo Jackson, you know, during the MLB draft. He's like, that guy's like Bo Jackson. That guy's like Barry Bonds. You don't want to do that with everybody. But... In Ellie's case, this is something I think we can do. I think it's great that you're bringing some of the bad comps in there because all of this excitement I'm throwing at everybody, I actually agree. I think Ellie could go through some struggles. He, We've seen it in the minors. We've seen huge, big strikeouts. We've seen the streakiness. He had a five-strikeout game less than a week ago. Ellie's going to have some struggles, but Tatis had those struggles, and he has that skill set like O'Neill Cruz. There's the other one. O'Neill Cruz regardless of having bad average, uh, batting, bad batting average woes had that last month where things started to click uh, last season. And you saw the huge hard hit kind of mask some of the problems. And you saw those stolen bases. I think some mixture of O'Neill Cruz to Fernando Tatis is where I live with him, but that doesn't mean he's not immune to problems this year. Cause he's a rookie and we're still seeing him adjust age to level again. The excitement should be there. You should have some cold water, but I don't know if the cold water for me would stop me from jumping all the way in on Ellie De La Cruz to own in dynasties and in redrafts. If I have the ability, I want to get him because if he goes on a hot streak and I think there's cold water, you could probably still move him for a King's ransom. So there's not a reason I wouldn't want in any format to own Ellie. So I've got uh, a lot of NFBC leagues are the the leagues where Ellie's available in the pool this weekend because he wasn't drafted and held this entire time, 
right? You can't pick up players in the minors unless they were picked up on draft day and then thrown back in the pool. So he's available in a good number of those leagues. I have a league. It's a main event qualifier, 15 team league. And my team's contending. The only spot that matters is winning. My team's got a shot to win. <laughs> Second place doesn't matter in this league. Here's my situation. Anthony Volpe at short, getting the power, the speed, but low average struggles we talked about on yesterday's show. And then I'm kind of rotating waiver guys in the middle infield right now. Tucapita Marcano is the current option there. Jose Caballero is on my bench. I mean, in this situation, I've got a pretty good team, a decent amount of fab, and a clear possible upgrade in the middle. That situation is probably one where I'd be about as aggressive as you can be with a player. Yeah, World Even Series with the of downside, poker. Push it all in. Just because that this is it. This is your shot. Like you... <laughs> If first place is all that matters, then or cashing in some cases is all that matters, this would be a spot to do it. So I think your team need always is an important thing to consider with the bid. Um, but Eno is right to bring up Javier Baez. We, we've seen this with players before. Yeah. I think the weird thing about O'Neill Cruz, we were watching him last year. We kept saying, come on, bring him up, bring him up, bring him up. And he wasn't that good at AAA. It was 232, 336, 422 was the final line that he had there. They promoted him. The K rate jumped. But the slash line was a little better with the slug and a little worse with the OBP by WRC plus. He was better at the more advanced level than he was at triple a Ellie's been so much better at triple a than a guy like O'Neill Cruz, where I just think the, the adjustments while they're going to happen, I don't think it's going to be quite as harsh as what we've seen with Baez and probably not even quite as harsh as what we saw for O'Neill Cruz a year ago. Also uh, ballpark factors. Think of him. He gets to do all this in great America ballpark. Like that's a, that's another nice little like, Tiny added well, plus we Babbitt. should throw in. Yeah, it should help the bat exactly for a guy that is going to be absolutely mashing baseballs. So I don't know, you know, if you had any thoughts on like the Tatis and O'Neill Cruz comp. I think I think the I think the big difference. Um, I I think the what might it might all hang on is chase rate, and I don't think that chase rate is. We talk about a lot, and maybe we overvalue it. There are players that succeed with high chase rates and so on and so forth. But if you're talking about this set of players, Javi Baez, Fernando Tatis, Willie Damas, the thing that really separates the top end from the bottom end is chase rate. The big thing that really torpedoed Javi Baez's career has been chase rate. And he's never really been below 40%. I mean, he debuted at 395 But let's just round that to 40 He's a 40% guy. If you look at Fernando Tatis, he's more like a league average guy. 32-33. That's league average. I guess the good news on Eli De La Cruz is I've got this piece from Baseball America who says that uh, his chase rates in the minors were 33% and 32%. Um, and so that puts him closer to Tatis than it does to Javi Baez. Um, and I just think that's uh, that's a little bit of a proxy for like, where are the strikeouts coming from? Are they just coming from just having no idea where the zone is? Yeah. Or are they coming from a power specific <laughs> approach where he thinks it's going to be a fastball and it's not, you know, and I think it's better to do the latter than the former. The former, when you just have no idea where the zone is, I think you really get into trouble because that's two things, right? No idea where the zone is. You can still get screwed on fastball slider, right? But then you can also get screwed on. That's not even close to the zone, dude. You know. Mm -hmm. But if you have an idea where the zone is, then at least you won't do that thing where you've seen Javi Baez do, where 
he thinks it's a fastball. He swings and it's a slider in the dirt, you know? And it's just like, you won't necessarily, like if you do have a, qu- a sense of the zone, you can be like, well, that's, that's, that's a little too low. Even if it is a fastball, because eh. every batter is like, go, 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 no, go, right? Like every batter has to start their swing to hit a 95 mile an hour fastball. So they have to start their swing. And then there's a moment where they say, nope. And they stop. Javi Baez for some reason doesn't stop. And it looks like maybe Eli De La Cruz has that ability to stop. His overall swing rate has been down, too, uh, in this piece that I recommend. Uh, and I'm very jealous of J.J. Cooper for having these numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he says his overall swing rate is down, too. But, uh, you know, it was 49% below minors, which I think is like, ooh, I can hit the ball 118. I'm going to swing at everything. <laughs> that's what I would do, right? I mean, if I could hit a ball 118, I would try to hit every... That's the problem. That's why I'm nowhere near a professional athlete. I have no discipline whatsoever. If I had a rocket arm, I'd throw my arm out, just throw in stupid stuff for no reason. But down to 42% in AAA. So 42% uh, is actually sort of patient. So you've got a guy who does not... Who in very two very specific cases, how much he swings and how much he chases... He's separating himself from hobby bias. So I think, um, you know, uh, I think I would put it something like it just to be conservative. I think there's like a, what, like a 20% chance he's hobby bias. <clears throat> You're like sort of setting a floor at hobby bias. That's a good floor. And that's, it's, it's smart to do like sort of 30 to 40% chance he's Willie Damas, who's better than, than hobby bias uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. You know, maybe not have the same peak, but, you know, better on a year to year level, maybe. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, a, you know, 30 to 40 percent chance he's Fernando Tatis. I take those odds. Those, those are pretty good odds that I would yeah. battle with uh, right now. DVR was mentioning a guy that he has. Would you not that you have to make this decision, but who would you rather have rest of season knowing what we know now? Anthony Volpe or Ellie De La Cruz? Oh, well, you, know, you crap. just picked up Volpe on Sunday. I just got so. Volpe and TGFBI, but there's no way that Elliot Dela Cruz is going for the 108 I got Volpe for. So, nope. <laughs> uh, uh, if they were the same price, I'd take Ellie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, yeah, uh, I, I have an NFBC league, by the way, which I picked up Ellie two weeks ago. Thought I was getting ahead, and I and I lost Elliot Cruz at the beginning of the year. So I get to just play the Why play was the he game even in the player pool. That means that somebody drafted and him and dropped yep. him. Yeah, I might, he must have been. He was available. I, I had picked up CES, which I've been sitting on, and I was able to get Ellie De La Cruz uh, two weeks ago. That's crazy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pretty thank fun you, range you. of outcomes, though, and the, just the 
just even the possibility of another Tatis sort of player entering the pool is why we're so excited and why some of us are going to throw absolutely massive bids out there. You know, and also the last little thing to throw in, look at what the Reds did with Matt McClain, where they immediately threw him in and let him be the number two hitter. Start thinking about where, what if Ellie is hitting four? Like, what if they throw Ellie in at four, probably at worst five at this point? What do you think point? they do defensively? At third base. I think he's going to third. Nick Zell went to the IL for this move. Um, when Corresponding Mc- move tells us everything. Well, but when... Um, when Ellie and McLean were playing in AAA together, whenever Matt McLean was shortstop, Ellie played third base. So this is actually that corner that they've done before. Ellie might be a more natural shortstop. And maybe this comes back to that uh, athletic piece of like, is there something with India if they want Matt McLean to be a second baseman? I think it'd be and really interesting if McLean starts playing some second. Something to know. watch, but then what do they do with India? But I think what it is is Ellie or is going to be their third baseman. Yeah, Ellie's their third baseman. Maybe they move around, and whenever Nick Senzel comes back, he's out on the outfield. That's done with. He's not. Ellie's not giving that up. Ellie is their third baseman for the rest of the season, unless they did. Now, here's a weird funky one, is what if they said, we want Ellie to be our shortstop, we want McLean to be our second baseman, and then Jonathan India flips over to third base. Like That's a possibility. He doesn't, but I don't think he has the arm for that. I don't think so either. So they're going to have to figure it out. That's why I think they're just safe I this year with Ellie. Want, I have like five... Uh, middle infielders in in my uh, main, and I would just love it for McLean to play third, but I just I don't think in all these commutations and permutations that McLean ends up at third. No, McLean's arm I think they'd like better at second, so Ellie's got a huge arm, so he can easily play third, has been doing it, so that that's my assumption of where he goes. Here's a, a weird thing, so there's Kristen Anacarnasio and Strand is the open question about like what happens next, um, and uh, you know, while they've done a great job of of putting everybody so far and Canasso and Strand is kind of could he be the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of where India goes or what happens with India um also Joey Votto is struggle bunny right now in the minors I was really surprised to see this he's not hitting for power and he's striking out 41 percent of the time how long can they rehab him 30 days, right? Him. I don't know if he'd stay. I don't know if he wants to do 30 days down there, but it's 30 but he days obviously limit, right? pushed the rehab off. Remember, mm-hmm. like he was like he was like I'm not ready, and so they put him back on the IL. And I mean, he nobody knows you like you, so uh, I don't know if he's still not ready. 114 ISO. He's hit the ball 107.9, which is uh, would put him back uh, five years in terms of max EV. Uh, 41.5% strikeout is just weird as heck for him. 15% whiff rate. I don't know. Like maybe they just find, uh, uh, they just, they're like, nope, he's back on the IL. You know, (laughs) I think he's actually the toughest thing here because I really wish they would just, you know, pull the rip cord because CES makes all the sense in the world to be their DH because he can play some third. He can play some first Spencer steer has played so well. And that's been my kind of caveat to jumping all in on Spencer steer or CES. Cause I don't know where Vado. Yeah, how sits. do you fit steer? Uh, Ellie McLean, India and CES. Well, on I think process. it's the Vado CES steers. How do you make that yeah. work? Steer yeah. can also play the corner. Steer has been phenomenal. Sub 20% K rate hitting 288 
eight homers, three stolen bases. He's projecting out to look be close to like an 80-80 guy, 80 run, 80 RBI. He has been so underratedly good, you can't take him out of the lineup. Also, I think he was the highest war um, Cincinnati Red in the month of May. You can't take him out of this lineup. So how do they, this is why CES, I think, is still down. If they could just, I think, pull the Joey Votto thing and make that go away, but you which you hate I to mean, see. I know you can't. I do, I, that's what they, I don't know they how gonna, they do it. Are they going to end Joey Votto's career in Cincinnati with a DFA? That'd be, that'd be worse brutal. than the possibility of of the you know the Jonathan India moving off his position or Jonathan yeah. India being oh traded. Oh my god! Like, like what, who what is it more beloved than Joey Votto? Yeah, yeah. The unceremonious <laughs> uh, DFA of Joey Votto would be a, a horrible plot twist for the Reds. But this is really a, an. I impressive... suppose they could fall worse behind because their pitching is not quite there. They're twenty seven thirty three. At some point, you just bring Votto back up for like a, a you know a. Farewell, farewell tour, tour. Yeah. and uh, that just means that CS uh, maybe maybe they put Votto back on the IL. He comes back off the IL, does another thirty, you know, and then you know comes back later in the season when someone else is hurt or I don't know. Like it's uh, that is I think the the last great mystery about the Reds. But and if the Reds are bat, that's a problem. You could just not play every day that's an option yeah he could be a bit yeah but see the problem is also it's like they've got, how many guys can you have that can play first base you already have steer you have ces like you've got all these guys Some the um, india is kind of a first baseman love. yeah i'd be curious if they made a move in that direction if maybe they changed positionally some stuff but also something that'll be interesting to watch is if they treat ces from the school of hitting prospects in how what they did with um with like Ellie, you know, they they pushed him this whole time. CES is like three weeks behind, if you remember. He had like three weeks at the beginning of the season. Maybe they've got a set amount of at bats that they want these guys to get. And, you know, they've got a two or three week window. Cause I don't see how much longer they can keep him in the minors and justify, but they've got this roster crunch that maybe they're buying themselves two or three weeks between the development of what they want him to do in the minors and where Joey Votto's rehab recovers. It's a great problem to have if you're a Reds fan and you're a Reds team, but it is it's frustrating to see Ellie as long as he was in the minors and uh, Christian Encarnacion Strand still sit down there when you know hitting 300, hitting he had 10 homers uh, over the last 30 days. I mean, he's been a monster as well. One question that occurs to me uh, when you look at the standings, 27-33, when you talk to when you when you listen to us talk about what we think is going to happen with this team, I think one of the big questions is is this team good? Because if this team is good. <laughs> then you don't really want to have Votto up to not play. Uh, you'd rather, I think, have Encarnacion Strand up uh, to play first right now than Joey Votto. Um, and so Two different the, players, too, by the way. Chase Rate is like astronomically worrisome about CES, and Joey Votto has always you know, <laughs> yeah. been a patient. So it is very interesting. Maybe they could hang out together. Are they <laughs> hanging out together? Where is Votto They should mold. Rehabbing? Become one play. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. They should become yeah, one Yeah, Votto's player. in AAA. Maybe, maybe they could... Uh, figure something out but uh you know i i look at this uh this rotation and you know G graham ashcraft is something that my model really likes but he's obviously a two-pitch pitcher with flaws i think hunter green is an ace and i think he's growing into it i think another pitch would be good for him but he's he's doing like i wonder what spencer strider would do in cincinnati you know like it might look a lot like hunter green actually you know the you know although atlanta's a little bit hitter friendly you know, there's some similarities there between those two guys that I, I think that I'm going to call Hunter Green an ace. I'm going to call Ashcraft a project. I'm going to call Luke Weaver the veteran. Um, <laughs> That's a the nice... veteran hangers on. I'm going to call Lodolo <laughs> the possible 2-3 that took a step back. Okay. Wild card. 
the wild card. I'm going to call Williamson a back-end guy. I, I, I think he could have some Wade Miley-esque success by doing cutter change. And then new entrant, Andrew Rabbit. Yeah. Who had a really nice debut. The model doesn't love his fastball, but the model is a little bit biased against lefties. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but we did not platoon adjust uh, in stuff plus. That, ha- that happens in pitching plus. So there's a possible, there's a little bias against lefties, but still, a, you know, 90 stuff plus on the fastball. I don't think it's a great fastball. He does have a great breaking ball and he locates it well. And that might be enough to be at least a, you know, a mid, mid rotation guy. Like, think about it. How much of a league, this is a slider league. He's got a great slider and he can locate it, or he's got a breaking ball and he can locate it. It might be called a curve. Um, and that might be good enough, you know? Uh, to, to there's a lot of guys who have success with that with that as their basis. Didn't get a lot of swing and whiffs in this first game. I think he had ten total. Um, something to watch too. This is something I'm going to pay attention to. That I think we saw very early on with like Taj Bradley, Tanner Bybee, and how it adjusts was Andrew Abbott. You can kind of see like with how dominant that big breaking curve they they call it. You know the curve. There's Whatever, a sweeper the in there as well. Ball, yeah. yeah, and how he adjusts, but like how that would be difficult in the minors for guys to deal with. And you could see it in the first end of the majors. He wasn't getting whiffs on the curveball, 11%, nine swings, only one whiff, but eight called strikes. It ended a 39% CSW. So look at the whiff rate, garbage, but called strikes and whiffs, huge, huge. That was the biggest one because guys weren't ready on how to approach that uh, curveball. So my point is, is what happens when you're not getting a bunch of swing and whiffs? And then the league adjusts to the curveball. Guys know how to start looking for it more. And he was a 60% fastball guy. I just don't know what that's going to look like. He throws better strikes than a guy like Brandon Fott did. But we're also seeing what's happening with Bryce Miller. And what's going to happen... That's a big adjustment period there, too, where it's a great fastball. But the secondaries, you know, don't scare people as much. Like, he's throwing strikes with these, which you weren't seeing from Fott. And we're not necessarily seeing from Bryce Miller, which is a good sign. But, like, how is this going to mix when there is a better feel for who Andrew Abbott is? I love his ability to throw for strikes. But... He gave up like eight homers in a short stint in AAA. I'm worried about fly balls in that ballpark. And I'm worried about like what level the strikeouts are going to be. But that's me. It's me doing the, you know, the cold water thing on him. It was an awesome debut. Guy gave up one hit. I mean, it's crazy. There's okay, a lot of blue he didn't on a bunch savant of... page, though. If you want to look, it's like negative. It's a, it's bad vertical movement on all his pitches. Yeah, we'll have I, to see. I thought his fastball, it had more velo than Eric Lauer's four seamer, but it had that sort of like, how are guys not hitting this vibe when I was watching it? Just it looked, it looked like a surprisingly hittable fastball. Uh, Brewers have been bad against lefties all season. Second worst WRC plus as a team, seventy one actually. So I'm not, not trying to say that's the reason why he was good in this outing, but they are horrible in that split. As much as that could possibly matter, I thought the command of the curveball was a little bit inconsistent. He missed pretty badly, I think, with one to Joey Weimer that went to the third deck, but it was fouled by about twenty feet. So that could be a problem if he's not locating that consistently. On it, yeah. yeah, so I mean, the park always scares us away <laughs> from the more like mid and back end rotation guys. Maybe Abbott's the kind of mid rotation starter that's a little better than average in terms of a strikeout rate, and that makes him pretty appealing for fantasy. But if I'm comparing him to Reese Olsen and AJ Smith Shaver and Brian Wu and the guys we were talking he's, about on the Monday episode, me, yeah. he's definitely behind Smith Shaver. 
he's short term, maybe ahead of Wu, because I think the way the Mariners might use Wu could make him pretty frustrating, whereas he's Abbott has job security. So mm-hmm. I think Abbott versus Reese Olsen is the more fair sort of toss up. And Reese Olsen's home park gives and you Olsen, so much more buffer. And Olsen is a stuffist with bad command. And Abbott is gives me a little bit more of the command and less stuff vibe. Let me let me push back on the AJ Smith Shaver one just for a second because this is a good because I was just asking this question uh, earlier today. Is I think this is like I think the stuff is better for Smith Shaver, but I don't think there's a guarantee that he sticks in a rotation. I know they're putting him in Friday, but this and this comes back to my mix of trying to figure out how of, the hell teams. That was sort are, of my read first too. Is like I thought Wu and Smith Shaver were going to be glue guys rather than necessarily be yeah. rotation mainstays. And I've had a bad read on like how teams are approaching. Like I thought Mason Miller never had a shot at coming up as early as he did with 30 innings, and then bam, he's in the rotation. Smith Shaver, I have a hard time believing at his age level and where he's gone that they are going to just give him a rotation spot and he's running with it. The Reds have essentially given Abbott this. 68 innings last year. They brought him up to be a long relief guy Smith to help Schauer. the bullpen. Smith Shaver. Yeah, that's he that's pitched, how I read it, yeah. He pitched two and one third against the Diamondbacks. He was good. His uh, curveball all over the place. He couldn't command it. Slider looked good. It's really Fa- big. Yeah, and fastball looked good on the command. His first strikeout was against Corbin Carroll. This is all great. I don't get the vibes that they are going to hand the rotation spot rest of season to him. So I think this is Smith Shaver with good stuff who might be in and out of spot starts versus Andrew Abbott, who they are handing a rotation spot to the rest of the year. So that's why I think that the, the only the only pushback bit. I can give you on that read, which I agreed with and was my first read, is that sir, the corresponding move was Soroka getting sent down. And. Uh, I suppose the way that you could be right is that Max Fried comes back. They just moved him to the 60-day IL. That's not a good sign. But that, I think that was that was retro. I mean, he was already out. Like, he was yeah, it was already out for half the season. That's anyway. like the Degrom one. Like everyone's freaking yeah. out about Degrom. Like, but, but he can like, come back and they three just weeks. now we have a better sense of when he might be back. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's just how the roster works. That's how you they but wanted. They, they needed the slot for maybe for Sushavar to put him on the forty man, but. Um, they got Dodd and Schuster, and maybe they intertwine those guys. I mean, maybe I'm making too much about him not being able to give you starts. Well, maybe all they season. just give him the rotation spot till Freed is back. Yeah, and that's kind of how I feel. Because is down, and the stuff wasn't there. And I don't know when he's going to get it, but until he gets the stuff back, he's not back. Is that a is that a worry? Is that enough of a bet? Why you go with a guy who can pitch the rest of the season? And assuming that Shaver can't keep it, that's like my question to you guys with that is we, we all like agree. How do you want to use Smith Shaver's innings best? Do you want, well, his stuff do you want is, him to be a starter for like two months and then not and then a reliever in the in the playoffs? Yeah, I think that's well, the idea. I think that's the team context. But like we all agree Smith Shaver's stuff is the best here is the bet. But is it enough that we don't think he's going to be able to stay in the rotation to take Abbott or is his stuff too good? We say, screw it. We don't think about too much of the future. We know we got two or three starts. Let's bet on him over the season on Abbott. Cause I think that is a decision that a lot of people are going to have to make. I'm just one foot in front of the other. I see them both having rotation spots. I like Smith Shaver's stuff better. I I'm going to, I'm just going to think about the now and I'm yeah. just going to take Smith Shaver over Abbott. I think that's how I look at it too. I'm playing more like a month at a time or even a couple of weeks at a time right. because <laughs> yeah. with, within the chaos, like we were talking at the beginning of the show about Ellie and Morton the range of outcomes down, for you know, elder could go down. Anybody can go down. Yeah. The, the range of outcomes for an elite prospect, a guy that was number one on some lists and top five on everybody's list. 
there's a pretty wide range of outcomes for a player that good. The range of outcomes for any of these pitchers is, is. <laughs> much wider. And I mean, for Smith Shaver, just the fact that he's in the big leagues this year at all is a, is a big surprise. But I think because of what the Braves did last year with Harris and Grissom, that yeah. really makes me comfortable believing that they see him as their best option right now. And, but as we saw with Grissom this year at the beginning of the season, nothing's permanent. If they don't like what they see, if they feel like a veteran is a better option, they'll push that button and they'll make that adjustment if he's not ready. So there's there's a wide range of outcomes. So if you think and the I, stuff and is I, better, in terms play of for the my, stuff. In terms of my model, I default towards fastballs. I like guys with really good fastballs. I, I think that some of the guys that we've seen, some of the outcomes we've seen this year have really flown from you know who had a good fastball. Uh, I know that Bryce Miller is a bit of an ex- exception to that, but Bobby Miller, Taj Bradley, you know, there's there are some really good fastballs among the rookies that's, that have succeeded. The difference between Sishmaver and Andrew Abbott for me is the fastball. And one thing I throw into to your point, like, and you were at, you were kind of like creating this pseudo, like, hey, there could be this like consensus guy, and there's nothing to read. Yuri Perez could be gone in a week. Or Trevor Rogers just had, a, I think, like like 15 swinging whiffs in his, Yuri in his Perez rehab is start. really struggling with the command, I think. And, but he's getting away with a lot of stuff. Yuri Perez, I think from a stuff perspective is like my favorite. That's up of all the guys I would bet on him. But all of that said, the Mar- the Marlins could just kind of just say, all right, you did a great job, kid, you know, whoop, take it easy. We'll talk to you later. And when Trevor Rogers comes back and they could send him down. So it doesn't matter the prospect pedigree and how well they've gone in. I think it's, I mean, just to we're going off track a little bit here. I don't. I don't know. We always do that. That's we could just call this the off track show. Uh, <laughs> off track. But yeah, uh, I mean, I think Braxton Garrett would go down first. Uh, Braxton Garrett's been pretty good. I don't know. I mean, I don't think Yuri's going anywhere. So I, I, I know what you're going with it. So you're probably actually right. I think this is just the dilemma. Edward Cabrera I, has reestablished who Dude, he was as well. Edward Cabrera. Before, let me see. What's this one? Remember our Edward Cabrera show before, like a month ago? Yes, <laughs> eleven dude. walks in May yeah. over five starts. Before, before five seventeen, he'd never had uh, consecutive starts with uh, with less than like three, like five walks or something. Like it was pretty incredible. And then in five seven five seventeen against the Nationals, six strikeouts, zero walks. At Colorado, six strikeouts, one walk. He did have some regression at Angels, five strikeouts, four walks. At Oakland, 10 and 1. Mm, are these bad teams that he's not walking? <laughs> a lot of Nationals, like. Rockies, and A's. Is it a matchup thing? It's so tempting, though, because you're like, if he could command the ball, and he's he'd be starting to do yet it. another, you know, dude with a capital D. He's had, in his career, Edward Cabrera has had two months. So far, where he's at a walk rate under 10%. End of last season, so September, October, lumped together, 9.8%. It was in 27 and two-thirds innings. And just now in May, 9.4%. So it's happened twice. So two out of the last it's three a bit of a, a bit of a marker. I mean, what did we what did we find when we were looking through comps for, you know... Oh, we found Daniel Cabrera and the worst and Volquez. Ever. We found all the guys that we used to like, but that what we was, thought could be good, that weren't good. What was the number we were using? We were using his, like, 14% walk rate. Oh, yeah. We were using I'm, the career number because the, yeah. the career number is a problem. <clears throat> the, old, the larger sample is a concern. But he'll play so much better at 9.8. Like, if he could get it to 9.8, even 10, he would... Then he's on a different list, you know. He gets well. Then he's comps. just 
then he's just a high injury risk guy because he's had a bunch of arm stuff. Right. Like, so then he then he kicks the control concerns, and he's that electric guy that could come up and be a top ten starter if he's healthy. But the if he's healthy is carrying a ton of weight there, and you have to value him more like a thirty to forty range starter. Let me yeah. let me ask something. You know, who would you rather have rest of the season? AJ Smith, Shaver, or Yuri Perez? <laughs> Yuri has more innings, has a really nice home park, uh, and a really nice fastball. So I'm gonna go with Yuri. Okay, it, it sounded like you were going in another direction because you were saying like, I mean, two well, to five just, ERA in the struggles. Yeah, well, I just wanted to point out that Yuri Perez uh, has a 90 uh, location plus, um, with, and Edward Cabrera has 100. I mean, this is a, this is actually a really difficult. <laughs> so we, you know, you know, has brought this up many times on the show over the years, it, even though. The Verducci effect has been debunked. The management of young pitchers hasn't really evolved much past that, like as far as the, mm-hmm. the increases. And the reasoning is, well, it's just how much more we give them. Like it, it, the publicly stated reasons, at least, haven't changed a whole lot. The Marlins are five over 500. They've been fortunate in that. If you look at their Pythagorean record, they should be closer to 500, if not below 500. Eight and two in their last 10. Good young team, needs bats has some pitching depth. I've made the case before that they should trade pitching like as soon as they have enough healthy pitching to deal someone and make the offense better. And I have some sourcing that says that Rodgers has been on the block. Right. So all of that is is normal and fine and great, but if you have to call the shots with Yuri Perez and the playoffs are a possibility for you and They're his long-term future is way. important, all of these things are a real decision. So if you're Kim Ang and you're in that front office and you're trying to come up with a good plan, what is the smartest thing you can do with Yuri? Do you back off him as a starter and use him for an inning or two at a time at the big league level? I don't think sending him down and having him throw at AAA does a whole lot. He I mean, had yes, you, you can control the innings without hurting your big league club that way and you have the options, so it's there. But isn't there a case to be made that if you're going to manipulate the innings in a way just to keep them fresh for later in the year that you skip them on off days and, and use them in a relief role for we a while while everyone's the, healthy. The all-star game, the gambit, right? Send them see down that for right sure. before yep. the all-star game, you know, basically don't pitch him for two weeks and then, and then ramp him back up. So he takes like three weeks off in the middle of the season. Just for context, Yuri Perez, 78 innings in 2021, 77 innings in 2022, and already at, 55 innings this year the uh, the the sort of established number that we've sort of seen is like kind of plus 20 percent plus 20 plus 30 innings so you let's say you have 105 innings uh for yuri perez and for smith chauver uh you've got um something similar but minus 10 innings right because he had 68 innings last year i thought i said uh, Smith Shaver had uh, 68.2 innings last year and has used up uh, 28, 35, 37 of them. So you could get Smith Shaver, I think, to 90 innings. Um, and you could get Yuri, I think, to 100, 110. Same kind of problem, though, for both of these teams. And maybe your option is to say, well, if you're the Marlins, we don't really know if we're going to be a, a playoff caliber team come August, but our best chance of even being in that position when we can do something about it at the deadline is to use him now when he's healthy and just max him out and then say, 
We hit August 8th or whatever day he runs out of innings. He's gone to the pen. He's in the pen or he's just shut down for the season, and we, we have enough pitching, and we're going to get by without him. I don't know. Slower. I mean, they go to six-man. I mean, they could just do their thing, do the three-week, move to maybe a six-man towards the back end of the year, and then, like you guys are saying, if you're going to make a real run, maybe it is back into the bullpen. Because you wouldn't want to do that now and then try to – you can't stretch back out. It's like once you do it, once you open that, you're done. Like if they move them in a bullpen role, then you got to go through stretching, and I think that's a bad thing for a young guy. So I think they're going to work it through. But it does open up this conversation but that if like – the Marlins and you make it to the playoffs, you're going to want to have them in the playoffs. I can't I can't even mentally have the, the like – rational conversation around like, okay, well, you know, we can get them to maybe one fit. Just the best players go out there. Like these guys are professional athletes. Right. They're doing that. Like I, I get there's arm constraint issues and stuff like that, but I can't, I can't even have a normal conversation with if you're winning and you have this great guy, you can't send them away and you can't, you can't cost your team and all of this just off of making sure you don't go 15 or Especially 10 when the science over. isn't necessarily there, right? It's crazy. It's crazy to me. I think with with Yuri Perez, one difference is that Smith Shaver had 68 innings and then the year before had like, I don't know, he had two in Major League Baseball, you know, in the in 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 in, in professional baseball. That must have been the year he was drafted. So maybe he had some some um some college innings. But he Yuri Perez has uh, has hit a level that he's met twice in a row, you know, so he's at least made it to seventy five innings twice in a row. So I think he could, I think he could make it to. You might be able to push him to one hundred and twenty, but even if you're pushing him to one hundred and twenty, you know, that gives you seventy five more innings this year. That doesn't give you enough to get through the whole year. It gives you fifteen more turns to the rotation at five innings apiece. And you need about twenty-two turns to the rotation to get through the rest of the season. But what if you six-man it? What you know? They got that's what they should Coito do. And, I, yeah. I think that's that's the move. That's what I would choose for now because someone's going to get hurt, and if no one gets hurt, someone could get traded, and you can solve the problem a little later. You kind of defer it to a future week or a future month. And the problem with uh, with six-manning is usually that you have an ace that you want. Um, that you don't want to have less of. Uh, and I know I'm not saying you don't like you, like I'm not saying that San Alcantara is bad. I'm not saying that I'm saying is this rotation is actually fairly good all the way through. Uh, so it's not like the Mets where like, if the Mets go to a six man, they get less of Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer and more of Tyler McGill <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, with the, with the Marlins. They have so many young guys that maybe, maybe they'll even pitch better on, you know, more rest. Maybe that'll help Sandy. And then you might have like a really dominant pitching rotation that's that's that makes sense one through six, you know. Yeah. So a lot to be determined there, but the innings concerns for both uh, AJ Smith Shaver and Yuri Perez are very real based on what we've seen in the past. Shaver, I mean, is a high school kid drafted just a couple of years ago. Like, no, what? so that high that's that high school year where he has two years. He has like three innings in the complex, Smith Shaver. How much does that even matter? How much does your high school workload matter if you're trying to like, go? If you're going back two or three years looking at workload, and one of I those went. years is the senior year of high school, and you threw over a hundred innings that year, does that mean you can go over that because you've done it before and you didn't break? I went to a college game last night. I saw Stanford uh, beat Texas A&M. The guy who pitched the last four innings was the best pitcher for this for Stanford this year. Quinn Matthews, I believe his name was. Uh, I'm more sure about the first name because we were yelling Quinn. Uh, but uh, Quinn had pitched Friday three or four innings, 
and it was Monday, and he was pitching. He pitched four innings, I think. So That's college baseball for you. I mean, look at the the arguably would be the number one pick if Dylan Cruz wasn't there at LSU. Paul Skeens. Paul, Paul Skeens, Skeens the other they day. They didn't throw a hundred and eighth or something. And twenty four oh. in the ninth. He was in the ninth. He went almost one hundred twenty four pitches. 124 pitches and it was into the ninth. And this is a guy that is going to be the, he would be number one if uh, if Dylan Cruz wasn't there, but he'll be number two. He'll be the number two overall pick. And just think about the, and that is actually one of those weird things to think about in pitching development. Like I think the nationals have that pick. Are the nationals going to want to taper things down with the usage that's going on in college? It's, it's a both side argument of like maybe high school and college usage is part of the reason they want to really baby, but also it could be something to say, well, these guys have had the workload before. Like you can press these guys a little bit harder than, you know, these really stringent um, uh, markers that you guys set for innings and amount of pitches and stuff like these guys can do it. But I know it's the fear of injury and uh, long-term development and stuff, but the Paul Skeen stuff was wild. I, I just think it's, it's awful. There's so much at stake for pitchers to stay healthy, get drafted, get that get that big bonus and get their professional career started. And for the college coach, it's like, hey, I just want to win. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I don't I think there's a major leaguer that's legacy. thrown 120 this year, right? Not even close. It'd be a short list if anyone's done it. I haven't seen anyone do it. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things that were on the rundown. We'll fly through these <laughs> in rapid fire fashion. Luke and Baker is getting a look in St. Louis. He was on a 54 home run pace at AAA. That's with a 162 game schedule, which they don't play at that level. He's already listed by fan graphs as a DH. Welsh, I know a guy can't play a spot defensively if when he's debuting in the big leagues in the right hand corner of his fan graphs page, it just says DH. But is there enough hit tool for Baker to actually get to that power consistently and be an impact big leaguer despite his defensive limitations. Yeah, I mean, the only other place he could play is first, but they kind of got that short up in St. Louis. Covered. It's, it's kind of yeah. a little bit covered, so they don't have to you know, think too much into it. Um, You know, like when he first came out, he hit 300 in his first professional um, stint, kind of thought that that was going to happen, but then it failed. he failed to be under uh, over 250 for the rest of his minor league career until this year where he just started hitting. Sometimes the things click late. He's got monstrous power, uh, three hits, I think, in that uh, in that first stint here. So there's something there, but I also think like it's the same level of like Juan Yepes, you know, like why it's 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 like that. Like Juan Yepes has a little bit more defensive ability. I think he's actually a better hitter, but there is pure raw power to Luke and Baker. Um, he's somewhere between maybe the Crons, you know, Kevin Cron, and he can go oh. play in Japan to maybe CJ Cron and it working out like somewhere in that spectrum. That's Tough to Cron Louis too. Because, you know, year old righty. But you look at Nolan Gorman as a guy that you don't want necessarily playing defense every day. Alec Burleson, who's been an up and down guy, isn't really a good outfielder. Uh, Yepes, who you mentioned. This is a team that's supposed to pick it everywhere, and they're starting to draw people up that don't pick it anymore. Having other guys with similar limitations also makes it less likely this could work out. But they got they got a they got a guy named Moises Gomez who's been kind of kicking around. But he he just um, he like was one of the minor league home run leaders last year. Kind of started off slow. He just hit 13 homers in May. He started back up again. Wow. Um, That's a that's one of those guys that like I feel like Gomez would maybe be a better bet than Luke and Baker. Like you literally only have Baker up for the bat, and I don't know how consistent that'll be. Um, I think didn't Newt Bar go on the IL? Yeah. Was that the was that Newt it? Bar's on the IL. 
I think that one hurt Eno when it happened. Like I think wow. when Lars Newtbar is hurt. <laughs> I think Eno is hurt too. Back contusion. This sounds to me like a short-term move. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. Uh, Henry Davis got bumped up to AAA. Now you want a, a player that we can. Now that Ellie's up, if we want a player that we want to hit the table for and say, "Hey, wait, let's get a look at Henry Davis." Pirates still hanging around in the NL Central. You know, come on, is this going to happen? Are we a few weeks away from possibly seeing Henry Davis? We could use a nice another boost in the catcher pool. You know what I want to see that's going to show up uh, fairly soon on Fangraphs is Triple uh, A Max EV from Davis. I think that would be a somewhat relevant uh, piece of information because you know we have the seventy seventy raw power uh, grade from Fangraphs uh, and a fifty sixty game power. I want to see some actual numbers on that. I would love to see that. Um, but uh, what's really interesting to me is the guy that has a 35-45 hit tool grade on Fangraphs has an 18.7% strikeout rate with a 7.4 swing strike rate. Henry Davis does in A. I mean, that's pretty good for a guy with no hit tool. So, also interesting, they brought him up uh, to play with... I mean, before the season... Everybody only cared about Andy Rodriguez. No one cared about um, Henry Davis. And Henry I still and like Andy. Andy's been struggling, hitting under 250, four homers, four stolen bases, strikeout rate's still fine. But Henry Davis was playing a little bit of left field in double A. So be very curious to see the mixture of what's going to go on between Indy and Henry Davis. And if he so because Andy, Andy can up. play a lot of positions too. So well, that's they, what we thought. I always thought if you were going to say one of these guys was going to play at a position, it's like, that's ah, Andy, like let Andy right. go play in the middle infield and Henry Davis can be the catcher, but it might be the opposite. And it'll just be interesting to see like, that's if, right. When, this- when one is catching the others, maybe playing in the uh, field somewhere. At AAA so far, Andy has only played catcher. I do know that part of that has been, uh, and part of, uh, as I understand it, some of the uh, sort of struggles offensively for Andy is that the real the real thing that they wanted him to work on in AAA this year was uh, was the defense. I mean that's mm. that's not uh, that's not uh, saying anything that that is not somewhat obvious from just you know kind of he has a forty five fifty five field on on Fangraphs you know um, so that's why they played him constantly at uh, at uh, catcher which is weird because it's so is Henry Davis the better catcher so he comes up that you're gonna see something happen here right yeah because uh, maybe Andy will start playing other positions because they're like no Henry's the better catcher. And so would you, we were going to make a decision now. You know what, Andy? You're a multi-guy. And, and uh, no, I'm saying Andy is the multi-guy and Henry is the catcher. But uh, since they're both at the same posi- at the same level, we're going to see something there. So I would watch the positional game logs almost yeah. as much as the results. You know what's so fascinating? And not to go into a whole thing because we got to go. But like, I'm so intrigued at how catchers specifically, the offense can trail when they focus on defense, this exact same thing happened with Carson Kelly. And I remember so him not talking that many about hours it. in the day. Like it's yeah, well, really hard to prepare for both. When Carson Kelly was drafted by the Cardinals, he was an offensive bat and he was so behind on his defense. He put all his focus in there and his bat completely trailed behind. And it took him like two years to get that offense to catch back up to the focus that was being put on defense. I just don't feel like that. We see that anywhere else. The only, the closest thing to positional players have is when they, go from being a contact hitter to trying to hit for more power. And then you'll see them like struggle and, and try to move through that. But you don't see like fielders 
have offensive woes while they're learning to play another position. It's just specifically catcher maybe, learning to be more maybe. of a defensive talk some, I mean, maybe, I mean but, at least the, the announcers talk about this. I don't know if I've seen a study on this, but I see announcers talk about taking your defensive struggles on the field. Yeah. Like, or, yeah, yeah. Plate, and maybe I mean, it is taking more prevalent. Your defensive struggles to the plate. That's a thing I, that it's, I, it's, I it's like sort of real. collective wisdom, but it's not something I've seen necessarily studied. I think it's a thing that could happen, though. It's just, it's the, you're not it's like a psychology. It. It's, it's an effect of, yeah, of compounding your errors, right? You make yeah. one mistake, it turns into a few more. It gets you into a funk and, you know, take you it to press the, a yeah, little. Take it to and the bat, yeah. It's going to be different. I mean, people are going to vary a lot in how they cope with those those micro failures and, and maybe some larger failures along the way. But uh, I think Davis and Rodriguez, how they're used at AAA is going to shed some light on how the Pirates might actually see them fitting in together at the big league level. And I think we could see both in the next few weeks. They're in first place as the show starts today. They're not just hanging around the NL Central. And they're they winning it right now. swept the Cardinals. Congratulations oh, you, to Pittsburgh. Wow. I mean, that's put the, them back in the in the in the in the basement. There are weird things in this world that bring me joy, and the Pirates <laughs> sweeping the Cardinals just warms my heart. In, in, it makes like sense as a little bit of an NL Central guy over here. <laughs> puppy swarm videos, the Pirates sweeping the Cardinals, Puppies. donuts. <laughs> That's, it makes me so happy. I'm sorry, Cardinals fans. It's just I, I, had to, I have to root against you. It's just the way I have to be. <laughs> You're born into this. I was born into it. I moved into it, I guess. I moved into the rivalry. All right, a couple mailbag questions real quick before we sign off. Uh, Carrie wants to know, in a league where you can pick up minor league players during the season with exciting new pop-up players, how long do you hold on to guys like Matt Mervis and Joey Weimer, guys who are getting the opportunity at the big league level? Is it higher the pedigree the longer the hold time? Or if you have guys like Carlos Jorge, Ben Brown, A.J. Smith-Shaver, who was in the minors at the time this question was written, do you actually go out and take a chance on the next wave to be called up? How do you make those types of decisions? This particular league is 12 teams with 240 minor league players rostered. So that gets pretty deep. Uh, I mean, I would just say like a higher pedigree. I try to not be as turnstile, especially if this is, is this a keeper or yes. the Okay. I wasn't sure if this was like redraft. So, yeah, like top 50 prospects in struggles. I'm not looking to cut Matt Mervis immediately um, for what I would assume is a post-250 level guy that you could pick up. Um, but in redraft, if you were holding a bunch of prospects, I would probably, you know, two or three weeks. And if you see major struggles, like Mervis would be someone you could probably move on from. And I would want to pick up some of those pitchers. I, I'm not sure I'm answering that super great but like i don't want to let go of the high pedigreed rostered prospects after two or three weeks in any keeper-based format like matt mervis specifically yeah mervis is particularly tough because the gap between what you would do in a long-term league and what you would do in just a 12-team redraft league that doesn't have that sort of depth it's a really tough call he's fourth among rookies in barrel percentage minimum 50 plate appearances but he's striking out just over 33 percent of the time so he's had this slow start He's probably going to keep sitting against lefties. Waiting on that in a more shallow league is pretty frustrating. Weimer's the really tough sort of player for me to evaluate. Because he's because actually he, useful, too. Like, he's <sighs> being useful right now. I mean, six stolen bases. I mean, nine stolen bases, six homers, right? Like, mm-hmm. And if you take a look at the, the bat over the last couple of weeks, it seems like he's made a few adjustments. It, it's a better stretch from offensively. So you have this power-speed combo. It comes with a bad average right now. He's a great defensive center fielder which has been 
a really pleasant surprise for me. I didn't realize he was that good. Once Garrett Mitchell went down, I thought they were going to be in trouble rotating through center field, but Weimer has been fantastic Will he out be there. in trouble, though, when Garrett Mitchell comes back? That's well, not Mitchell's happening coming until, back this year. Yeah, yeah maybe, probably not until next year, and if it happens, it's going to be September. I mean, I well, think Sal Freelich could eventually yeah. enter the equation, and then we've talked about the possibility of Churio just being one of the other big prospects that, because of team need, maybe he enters the equation, and that hurts Weimer's playing time, but Tyrone Taylor's hurt again. You look at the way that team's built. I think Weimer is like solid, and I think the growing pains you're getting in year one are not surprising given some of the flaws we've seen, but he might be another good example of a player that because he struck out a lot in the upper levels of the minor leagues, people look past the power-speed combo. I mean, 26 for 27 at double-A as a base dealer last year? Sign me up. That's fantastic. With, with decent power, like good power on top of that. The setup is a little odd. As he knows, so it's a little odd. <laughs> he looks it's one of the like weirdest set up setups like a little league. person, but he's big. And he kind of does this weird little he setup. Squishes in. He he was worse in uh, the AFL, and he fixes. But he had his hand. He would do the bat out more. Yeah, he does that. And his yeah. hand, but he did it like more prominent. And I, the first time I saw it, I was like, I hate this. This will never work. And then he but kind of adjusted it. And, I, I don't remember the specifics of who the pickups were, but. You know, like if I was going to pick up a pitcher for a hitter, uh, I would want more sample out of the hitter, especially if they'd been ranked in the top 50. Now, if they'd been ranked outside of the top 100, you know, and we've got this hot young pitcher, then maybe I'd make that jump. Uh, So, yes, I think pedigree matters. But then also some of the small sample numbers matter. The barrel numbers matter, you know the swing strike rate matters. And so those things are going in all sorts of different directions for Mervis and, uh, and Weimer. And that's, that's difficult, but you can look that Mervis never really had a swing strike rate this high in the minor leagues. Um, and so that should be going in a different direction. And Weimer and Mervis both barrel the ball. So that, that's good. That would buy them more time on my roster. You know, the, the, the more you can barrel the ball, the more that I can see something that's, different from the minor leagues and for what you're doing in the major leagues and a small sample, the more I can be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to wait a little bit longer to see if Mervis is going to strike out less. And I'm going to wait a little bit longer uh, to see if Weimer, you know, what Weimer's batting average is going to settle down as, because I, yes, I think he's going to whiff, but he barrels and he's fast. Maybe there could be a little bit more batting. If Weimer can hit 230, he's actually a pretty good prospect. I mean, he's a pretty good player. 230, 2020, you know? Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, that works. I mean, 30, that, 20, 30. That, that plays in a lot of leagues. Although, you know, as the rules have shown, like the av- average league wide is up, right? Compared to past years where it averaged down. So a 230 hurts you a little more in this environment than it did in past years. And the years. steals help you a little bit less in this environment. Like yeah. With more steals out there. <laughs> but there's room to move up too because that, that lineup is a land of opportunities, especially with all the injuries that we've talked about on this show. Thanks for that question, Carrie. One last question from Johnny. Which side of a keep forever deal do you like more? This is head-to-head categories league with OBP. Teams can keep up to seven players for as long as they want. Are you on the Michael Harris and O'Neill Cruz side, or are you on the Bo Bichette side? Welsh, I'll go to you first. Ooh, that one hurts. <laughs> um... Well, the Michael Harris side is what makes it so difficult because his struggles are very much in everybody's face, especially for keeper leagues. I don't want to contextualize this because like, if I'm like a winning team, there's no way I'm giving up Obachette, uh, even to get two pieces with Harris's struggles. But like from a, 
pure keeper standpoint, getting O'Neill Cruz and Michael Harris, I, I think O'Neill Cruz can still be an absolute stud and compete against Bo Bichette once healthy, and then also getting the gamble on Michael Harris for him to rebound on what he was. I would lean on that side, but that is really tough because Bo Bichette is Bo Bichette. I mean, that's the top 20 dynasty keeper. Uh, Cruz has a little ways to go to be that, but then you're also getting your second bet. I think that is a trade on both sides that would be difficult. I guess I lean O'Neill Cruz thinking about keeper, but no way I'm trading Bo Bichette if I'm winning. Yeah, the, the stolen bases seem to be uh, dropping out of Bo uh, you know, bag of tricks the old age of 25 (laughs) yeah and so if i recalibrate and think of him as a 300 uh 25 to 30 homer hitting five to ten stolen base guy yeah i still want him (laughs) i'm gonna take him this is a classic i think uh you know it's hard when the upside is good but you know what I'm not sure the upside for either of the two players you're getting is a 330 homer hitting five stolen base shortstop. I know that Cruz is, yes, he can hit that home run mark. He can surpass that stolen base mark. I don't think O'Neill Cruz is ever going to hit 300. Ooh, DVR, are you ah. going to go with me? I feel like you're si- I feel like you're dancing around here on video. Harris has been unlucky. I did one note. Harris has been, I think, a fair <sighs> amount of what's going on with Harris is just bad. It's just unlucky. Yeah. I thought that, yeah, I talked to, I think, Keith Law on, yeah, it was the Friday episode of the Athletic Baseball Show, and then I saw a couple of Braves games over the weekends, and I saw I saw Harris smoke two balls that should have been hits that weren't. I was like, wow, this is this is the micro-sample validating what I thought rate, I saw. Same it's the same as last strikeout year. strikeout rate as last year. He's like, walking more. He's doing he's doing a little better Babbitt. in that department. If if Michael Harris was still hurt in this <laughs> in this thirty seven games of what looks like bad luck hadn't happened, you'd feel a lot differently about this trade. Mm. If you're only looking back at last year and say, "Hey, a ten percent barrel rate, elite center fielder, one of the best teams in the league," I'm going to get my three hundred average from the Harris side. Room for growth in terms of K rate and walk rate. We've seen one of those things already improve. I think when we talked about Harris throughout last season, I saw a lot of Bo Bichette's approach with him. Where I was like, okay, this is power speed. Uh, it's coming from the left side, but not all it, pull. He's kind it's of not a perfect, but it, it works. Like this is a really good player. I, I think I would take this. I'm almost tempted to say that you could maybe even squeeze out more for Bo Bichette right now, but I think it's a pretty fair trade because I think both Harris and Cruz would be in that keep seven group. What I'm really curious to know is if the team that's trading the two players actually has too many keepers. That's why they're mm. they're trying to pull this off. And if that's the case, you can definitely leverage getting and something else back well, out of that Also, team. the missing information is who does who does the second keeper push off of yours? Right. Who's not on your yeah, keeper that, list that is by very taking important. second one back? Yeah, it is but, important. Because Michael Harris is... we don't. I don't want to call Michael Harris a slam dunk. Last year, this is a slam dunk uh, top seven keeper. But where things are at, we don't want to say he's a 100% slam dunk keeper. So who does he push off might be and, important. And, and there, in, in these keep seven situations, these small keeper situations, I don't know. I've, I've put together some packages that might... You might be like, what? You gave up these five players for this one? And it's like, yeah, the, the one is better than the five is my keeper situation. <laughs> and that's all I care about. Like, I'm just trying to get to seven keepers, you know? I do lean Sometimes, on best player yeah. in trades, and Bichette is the best player. But yeah. th- this one particularly, I, I got to stick on It's closer side. than a lot. It is very close. Really, really tough. Make it two votes on the O'Neill-Harris side, one oh, on the Eno side with Bichette. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry to go against you, buddy. <laughs> Send donuts next time if you want me to vote for you. <laughs> I can be persuaded with deep fried sugar. 
We are going to go on our way out the door. A reminder that you can get a subscription to The Athletic for $2 a month at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. On Twitter, you can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find Welsh at Is It The Welsh. You can find me at Derek Conriper. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.